0: Amen. Thank you. Um, We have a golf... First of all, anybody need a lesson? Uh, Mark's got not only the lessons for this week, if you need one, but last week's lesson, because a lot of what we're going to talk about this week um, is in last week... Well, no. We're not going to discuss the stuff in last week's lesson. Uh, So if you were not here last week or don't have a copy of last week's lesson, it's helpful for you to have in case you want to read it uh, or look at it later because it's got additional material beyond what we're doing today. So just raise your hand and you know go like this. I guess like one finger means one lesson and two. I, Mark will figure it out. Um, we got a bunch of hands all down in here, Mark. Uh, so if you get some help and you all can get those. While they're passing out, a number of you signed up to play in Constable Ron Hickman's golf tournament uh, Monday, March 29th. Those of you who signed up, I've got the, the information sheet so that you know where to go. We've tried to put phone calls out to you. Uh, some of you, uh, Jan from my office was able to speak to. Some of you, she's left messages. But um, here's this information. If you need it, I'll have it up here. And, uh, or don't hesitate to call Jan in my office. Um, as I've gone through class uh, uh, trying to get ready for the oral presentation, if you will, Uh, the the lesson in here as opposed to the written lesson. I think I'm doing a disservice to try and fit all of the rest of the Apocrypha together in today's class. So orally, we'll probably divide it up and do some this week and do some next week. And uh, uh, sorry, but uh, I think I've figured out a way to do it that'll actually help integrate with uh, the New Testament lessons we're going to start. This is part two of the Apocrypha. Last week, in a nutshell, what did we do? We discussed that the Apocrypha uh, are a select number of writings that some folks in some parts of Christianity have recognized as part of the Old Testament, part of Scripture, part of the canon of of Bible. Um, uh, Most people who have recognized that are either in the Roman Catholic tradition or in the Greek Orthodox tradition. Uh, I believe the Russian Orthodox uh, tradition also recognizes it. Um, uh, uh, Those portions of Christianity that come from the Reformation movement, Martin Luther, who who sought to reform the Catholic Church uh, uh, and the churches that descended from that, which is uh, what we would consider most evangelical churches. You know, you started out with the Lutherans, but you get the Presbyterians with Calvin and... And, you, and the Westminster Confession of Faith, which uh, 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 speaks out on this issue, you get uh, uh, a number of different churches of which we are a part. Uh, those churches typically do not believe that the Apocrypha is part of Scripture, because those churches look to the Hebrew Old Testament to determine what the, the Old Testament should be, as opposed to the Catholic churches, which look to typically the Greek or Latin Old Testament. Uh, which are translations, ultimately, of the Hebrew. Uh, So, the Apocrypha are books that if you get a Catholic Bible, uh, for example, the the Jerusalem Bible, uh, you will see these portions in there. You will not find them in most Protestant Bibles today. If you'd gotten an original King James Bible in 1611, or if you've gotten some of the early Geneva Bibles that the pilgrims came to the United States with, Or you could even get a Revised Standard Version of 1958 that would have the Apocrypha in it, though most of the times those Bibles separate it out and say, this is the Apocrypha. Um, The Catholic Church does not say that the Apocrypha was originally part of Scripture. The Catholic Church recognized it as part of Scripture in 1546 at the Council of Trent. And then three books were still not counted Scriptural by the Catholic Church. Those that remain, and those that were counted as scripture, the Apocrypha, the Catholics called, and, and scholars call and I should have put it up as a theological term de jure Deutero canonical. Deutero is Latin for second and canonical. It's the second canon. It, it didn't make it in the first wave, it made it in the second wave, if you will. Um, so we talked about that last week, and you've got that in your lesson if you've taken a copy. From, from them just now. Also last week's lesson, we talked about some of the history of the Apocrypha and how it came to be regarded as canon by certain uh, groups and yet not as canon by others. All of that's last week. What I want to do this week is actually look at some of the books of the Apocrypha and look at them in a perspective of, of what they say to us, what they may have said to the New Testament writers, and uh, then next week we'll look at some more. And the ones that I've saved for next week will include the Maccabees books that have a lot of history of what happened in between the um, uh, Old Testament and the New Testament. So it'll be a nice segue into the New Testament. The first book we're going to look at this morning is called The First Book of Esdras, E-S-D-R-A-S. Now that's a fancy name, And I'm not sure that that many people would say, oh, yeah, I've heard of that name. Have you heard of the name of Esdras? Sure you have. You just didn't know it. That's the Greek word or name for Ezra, plain old Ezra. We have Ezra in all of our Bibles, right? But in the Greek, it's spelled, or or we would put it into English letters as Esdras, uh They don 't translate it in a Bible as Ezra. If I look here at my my um, Jerusalem Bible i 'm not even going to find it it 's not even on here. The reason why is first and second Ezras are two of the three books the Catholics did not decide are canonical. If you look at it in an Apocrypha collection though it won 't be in there either as Ezra. It'll be in there as Esdras because they want to keep it distinct from the Bible Ezra. They don't want anybody being confused. Esdras is, is one of the books that Martin Luther would not even translate into his German Bible. This was the book that uh, Martin Luther said, if you're going to read it, it's easier and quicker to go ahead and get the same information out of Aesop's Fables. Um, he, was, he was not a fan of it. Uh, first, Esdras is... A a book that is a historical book. It basically tells the story of what happened to Israel from Josiah's Passover, which we would read in Chronicles, through the time of Ezra reading the law, uh, which we'd read about in the book of Ezra, or if you are Greek, Esdras. Um, the, The history itself, though, is not very good. Uh, the, the writer of 1st Esdras has it mess, messed up. He's got kings backwards, certain kings are backwards. He's got certain events happening at the wrong time. Uh, if you looked at it historically, comparing it either to known history that we know through archaeology or to the Bible's history, you'd say, well, this isn't right. Which is one of the reasons why people say this is not a book um, uh, that is inspired by God to the level of canon. It is a fascinating book, though. Yeah, mostly, my, my favorite part of the book is the, the debate among the three soldiers. And if you need to know anything about Ezra's, this is the story you need to know. King Darius has had a big banquet, a big party. And everybody's basically gone home and everybody's sleeping <laughs> off the party, except these three soldiers. And they decide they're going to have a big debate. And here is the question that they're going to debate. What is... The strongest thing on earth. Okay, now think about that for a minute. What Lewis is thinking, me, no. Uh, What is the strongest thing on earth? So, what they do is they decide that they'll each write it down on a piece of paper. So that they can't change their answer. They're going to write it down on a piece of paper and they're going to take it to the king and they feel confident For some reason, which the text never tells us, they feel confident the king's going to give whoever's right a great reward. So, each one kind of writes it down. I don't know if they folded it up, but in my mind they did. They fold it up and they give it. And there's the big opening. And and the king invites lots of people in to hear the the soldiers uh, explain why theirs uh, is correct, why their answer is what it is. So, the first one comes... And the first one says, My answer, what is the strongest thing of all? Wine. It says, wine is the strongest thing, most powerful thing on earth, because wine can take over anybody. You drink enough wine, you can't tell the difference between the king and the poor man. Wine is the equalizer of all. You drink enough wine you lose control. You drink enough wine, you can't be who you are. You can't do what you want. Wine is truly the strongest, most powerful thing on earth. And the text doesn't tell us, but in my mind, everybody goes, oh, very good, very good, and applause. <laughs> then the second guy says, well, I'm not arguing the wine is strong, but It's not the most powerful. The most powerful thing on earth is the king. Because you think about it. The king says, jump, you say, how high? The king says, go to war, and people go to war. The king collects the tax. Everybody's got to pay the king. The king makes the laws. The king says, kill a man, you kill a man. The king says, spare his life, you spare his life. The king is the most powerful of all. Okay, now, part of us wants to say, okay, this guy's a suck-up, okay? He's thinking, well, if the king's going to make the decision. I'm going to write he's the strongest. He's feeling pretty good about winning. And I'm sure all the people were realizing that. So I don't think the applause were quite as loud for him except from the king himself. It's, hey, very good, very good. Then the third guy, his slip of paper is opened. And it reads, strong is the woman. I don't know if I'm getting more amens from the women or the men. Pat O'Quinn's up here going, yeah, that's right, man. Uh, he says, think about it. He says, first of all, you don't have any women? You don't have any kings. He says, second of all, you don't have any women? You don't have anybody who's going to take care of the, the vineyards that make the wine. Everybody who's anybody came from a woman. This is what he says. He says, and it's more than that. He says, if you think about it, you go into a huge room filled with all these golden treasures. And if there's a good looking woman in there, the guys aren't looking at the treasure. They all look at the woman. He says, and it gets further. Men, they go out and they fight wars. They conquer lands. They work themselves to death to get silver and gold, money, riches. And all they do is bring it home and give it to the woman. <laughs> That's what it says. And so everybody, oh, is yes, the woman, the woman. And then the man says, but as strong as woman is, Woman's not the strongest. Magna est veritas et privalet, or wallet, if you want to be technical. Um, um, which is a saying that comes from the book of Ezra's that's been used throughout the ages that says, great is truth and strong above all things. Because as incredibly strong as, um, uh, uh, what, what was the first one? Wine. Wine. As incredibly strong as um, the king, and as incredibly strong as women, truth is what makes the sun come up and the sun go down. Truth is the seasons. This whole world would fall apart without truth. Truth is what stands above everything. Truth is the constant in the universe. It is truth that allows anything else to exist. And so truth is great and strong above all else. And all of the people went, hey, and the king says yes, and by... Uh, uh, a claim uh, this man wins. It's interesting in the history of Christianity. Church fathers, for many times, uh, who, who believed in the apocrypha as part of Scripture, church fathers would attribute um, uh, this, Augustine, for example, to a prophetic statement of Jesus Christ, who said, "I am the truth," and that this was prophetic. That Jesus then was greatest above all things. Um, uh, I, this is what I would consider uh, folk wisdom. Um, uh, this is something that's very instructive. It's an instructive way of teaching our children uh, with a delightful story, uh, uh, something that is, is true. And if you take it the extra step and see Jesus Christ as the truth, then truly that is the right answer. For he is the greatest thing that has ever walked on this planet. Um, Second Esdras, a different book. It's got the same name, but it doesn't really have any affiliation at all. Second Esdras is a unique book because it's kind of in separate sections. There are seven uh, uh, visions that are apocalyptic, which means they're visions about the end times, or or about the future, to be more accurate, the future. Um, But... Plugged in at the top of this are two chapters that were probably written by Christians and were not part of the original. That's the first two chapters. So the first two chapters are a Christian preface. Then you have these seven apocalyptic visions. It's useful to look at because it gives you an idea of some material that was out there before John had his revelation. It gives you an idea of what was being written and what people were reading before they would get John's letter to the seven churches with his vision. Because this was well-known literature, in the Jewish circles at least. Um, the first vision concerns the problem of evil, and it's a vision of why is there evil in the world. There is an angel, Uriel. The angel Uriel comes to Ezra and explains that the human mind cannot fathom God. And you want to know why there's a problem of evil? Basically, you can't understand it. Sorry. Sorry. The second vision is, why is it that the unrighteous are getting to judge Israel? Israel's God's people. Why are unrighteous nations getting to judge Israel? Why do we have to fight the the Syrians, the the Syrian dynasty, the Seleucids? We'll get into this some next week when we look at the history in between the Old and New Testament. And the answer that's given is that we don't understand all of history. When you're standing here and looking back... You can't understand everything that happened. The human mind doesn't fathom it. The his process of history is inscrutable. You can't really understand it all. But we can stand here and look forward and know that the faithful are going to be rewarded in the coming age. That's the second vision. The third vision. Why is it that Jews have not yet inherited the earth? We're supposed to inherit the earth, we Jews, yet everybody just seems to take us over. It's just a question of who owns us on which day. And the answer in that is, again, from the angel Uriel, a Messiah is coming and when that Messiah comes, he will reign for 400 years and then there will be judgment. Now, the 400 years is, uh, 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 some would say, was symbolic within this literature to mean for uh, the duration of time that he should reign on earth. And when he's done, there will be a judgment coming. Um, There is a fourth vision that says Israel's not through getting punished. It's going to get punished again. But then there's going to be a new Jerusalem that will uh, come, that will be the county seat, if you will, or the... Whatever you might call it. Um, The fifth vision is a unique one. It's got this creature that's got three heads. It's an eagle with three heads and 12 sets of of wings. And um, it's flying. And a lion comes up and devours, kills the eagle. And uh, this is a vision. The three heads, three is a a divine number. And so the three-headed is a reference to uh, uh, spiritual things. Twelve is a complete number. That's an earthly number, but you have 12 months of the year. There are 12 hours in a clock. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve historically has been a, a number that represents completeness and fullness. And this represents all Physical and spiritual evil and righteousness. I mean unrighteousness, wickedness. Okay, That's the eagle. The three-headed means it's a spiritually evil, and the twelve wings means it's total evil. And the whole picture is all of evil is swooping and flying over the land, but a lion is going to come out and destroy and devour the evil. And the lion was symbolic of the coming Messiah in this apocalyptic literature. And so this was a vision that was indicating that Jesus, or not Jesus, we know Jesus to be the Messiah, but they didn't have a concept of that. The, the Jewish concept that is being talked about in these books is very different than the kind of Messiah Jesus wound up being. The Jewish concept is that this is a, Jew, a, a Messiah who's going to come set up an earthly kingdom and give Israel its land. And he will be a physical king. This is what the New Testament people thought Jesus was when they thought Jesus was Messiah. That's why they tried to make him king by force. And Jesus was saying, time out guys, Uh, that's not the kind of king I am. But, but these books are very instructive because they give us, and we'll go through this more as we get through the New Testament, but they give us insight into what the people were thinking Jesus should have been. They were thinking that Jesus was going to come and devour all of the righteous with his army and set up his earthly kingdom. Um, vision number six. A man rises from the sea and destroys his enemies. Another interpretation of the Messiah. Uh, uh, that there would be coming the Son of Man who would come from somewhere we don't know. That's why he rises from the sea. We don't know where he's coming from, but he's coming. And when he comes, his work will be to destroy his enemies and to conquer and set up the earthly kingdom. Um, And then the seventh vision is one that explains how Ezra went about receiving, Ezra, Old Testament Ezra, how Ezra went about receiving, uh, in essence, the divine ability to write out all of Scripture. Um, and not only the 24 books that we would consider the Hebrew Old Testament, but also how Ezra would come about to write out uh, 60 other books of uh, merit. So, that's, uh, that? Second Ezra's. Now we pause for a commercial break. Adjust your watches. Get your popcorn. Use the restroom. Are you ready? Okay. Tobit. So I was uh, Harvey Brown. Harvey and Cindy are friends of ours who are here visiting for the Apocrypha class. And as uh, I was walking by and said hi to Harvey, he had his Catholic Bible o- open and was reading the Book of Tobit. I thought, well, I was going to tell the story of Tobit this morning. I better sit down and read it and make sure I've got it right because he, you know, I don't want to mess something up. He used to be a judge, and that'd be bad for my credibility. So I probably should hand him the microphone and let him tell it since it's fresher in his brain. But I'll tell you the Tobit uh, uh, story anyway. And He can uh, (laughs) overrule me if I've said something wrong. Um, Tobit is a wonderful, wonderful story. It's a story that has had some tremendous implications for Christianity over the centuries. It's a delightful story to read to your children. Remember, even us Protestants who don't see the Apocrypha as Scripture don't need to run from it as, I don't want to read that, it might corrupt my theology. No, you can read it as wise writings. Who reads C.S. Lewis? Okay, well, it's not Scripture, but there's some stuff in there that's real helpful. C.S. Lewis is, who's told their kids the Chronicles of Narnia stories or read them? Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great way to learn about God. You know, it's it's useful. Well, this is another story. This is a useful one. We just need to make it clear where it comes from and and that this isn't something to build our doctrine off of. This is something that's useful uh, to, to read about. Tobit's a great story. It is what I call, the kind of literature I call it is pious fiction. It was written in around 170 to 190 B.C., but it is written as if it takes place in about 721 BC, you know, a couple hundred years later. So it's kind of a historical pious fiction, kind of like reading George MacDonald or something might be. Um, here are the characters. We need to know who the characters are for the story. Tobit is this righteous fella who, in the early part of the story, gets blinded. Uh, uh, I think it's bird droppings that blind him. And uh, he, <laughs> do not look up when they're flying, um, he gets blinded. Now, he's also a married man, and he's the father of a boy named Tobias, who's a good lad, and uh, so um, we'll go now to Tobias. Tobias is the son, righteous fella, good kid, not married as the story's beginning. Um, there's this girl named Sarah. Sarah is a a distant kinsperson who uh, has been married seven times, but has yet to consummate her marriage because there is a demon that's in love with Sarah who kills um, uh, her suitor, her husband, each night before the wedding can be consummated. And um, so she's gone through seven husbands so far and never yet um, uh, uh, experienced the fullness of marriage. Um, Raphael uh, uh, is an angel in this story in disguise. Uh, some of you are Hebrew scholars in the works. Jehovah Rapha is God that heals. Rapha means healer. What's L? God. Raphael means God heals. Okay, It's two Hebrew words put together. And that's the angel Raphael. So, these are the characters. Let me tell you the story. Do I have any of it down there? Ah, that's history. Leave it alone. Let me tell you the story. So, Tobit is this righteous man. Tobit uh, is is, uh, doing all the things right. He starts the story out living in Jerusalem, but he finds favor with Sennacherib and gets moved off to Nineveh. But he stays righteous and holy. There are three pillars of, of holiness in the Jewish faith during this time period, intertestamental time period, the 170, 190 B.C., even up through Jesus, the the Jews would debate, uh, there were three big pillars of holiness. One is prayer, one is uh, fasting, and one is almsgiving, giving money. And these are the big three. And the big debate was sometimes which of the big three are most important. And the odds are that's what Jesus was being asked when Jesus was asked, So which commandment's the the most important? Which one of the big three? Is it giving your money? Is it praying or fasting? And Jesus comes from left field with, the greatest one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and everything else stems from that. Whoa. He was impressive because he didn't speak like the scribes and the Pharisees. So they're big three with these. And if you read, uh, Tobit, Tobit is a righteous man because he's big on almsgiving, he's big on the fasting, and big on the prayer. He's holy and righteous before the God, and for some bad reason and some misfortune, when he, Tobit is in the middle of doing a good deed, Tobit gets blinded by a uh, uh, bird dookie. Um, I'm not sure how they translate it in the Bible. It's probably a little bit nicer, but that's uh, where I grew up in Lubbock. That's what we'd have said. Um, Tobit thinks he's near the point of death. In fact, uh, figures he might as well die. So he calls his son Tobias in and says, Tobias, I need you to make a journey. I I, I want to tell you all the things you need to know. You need to marry a family woman. Uh, Don't marry the heathen. You need to be righteous. Make sure you give your money. You know, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. These are important things. And there's a bunch of money that I had with this fella. And uh, you need to go collect it. And it's a few days' journey away. Uh, we'll get you a traveling companion so that you can make the journey safely, but you need to go collect the money, because it's our money, and it ought to be your money, because we're dying. I'm dying. And so Tobias says, okay, Dad, how are they going to know that I've got the claim to the money? Dad says, well, we wrote these two receipts and tore them in half, and one half with money, and I've got one half, so you're taking the receipt, and, and he'll recognize it, and hopefully he's, he's an honest man, and he'll give you the money. Okay. So they find some fellow to go with him on the journey, and it's the angel Raphael. God sends Raphael, and uh, Raphael's purpose is to heal. Raphael's supposed to heal Tobit of his blindness, and supposed to heal the situation with Sarah that you'll find out about in a second, but I haven't put into the story yet. So Raphael is an angel in disguise, no one realizes he's an angel, and he's going to get paid a drachma a day to go travel and show the way, be the guide and and all, and help Tobias uh, go get the money. Meanwhile, Sarah, bless her heart, as I told you, she's been through seven husbands so far, and every one of them dies the night of the wedding. Uh, uh, And they die early in the night, you get the impression from the story. I mean, it's just like almost immediate. Um, so, uh, uh, with that as background, Tobias and the angel in disguise set off on the trip. They make the journey, they find the kinsman to stay with there, and the kinsman sa- on the way, and the kinsman says, uh, uh, yes, here I am, and, and oh, I left out like the critical part of the story. On the way there, a fish jumps out of the river as they're going by, and Raphael says, quick, catch the fish. Save the heart and the liver and the gall, because they have curative powers. Tobias says, "Really?" He says, "Oh yeah, man. The gall is good for blindness, and the heart and liver will chase away demons." Psst, psst, psst. The guy says, "Okay, so, so pack those, <laughs> carry those in your pocket. <laughs> you never know when you're going to need them." Gets in heart and he gets them in his pocket, and he's headed on down the road. And uh, uh, then uh, Raphael says, Now, remember, your dad said marry a kinswoman. You've got one here. Her name is Sarah. And uh, uh, you need to marry her. And Tobias is a holy guy, but he, he says, You know, I know about Sarah. <laughs> he says, I think I would be um, Henry VIII. <laughs> I got married to the widow next door. She's been married seven times before, and everyone was a Henry. Remember the Herman's Hermit song? Wouldn't have a Willie or a Sam. I'm the eighth old man. I'm Henry. Henry the eighth I am. Second verse, same as the first. Um, He says, uh, you know, I'm not really sure that's a cool deal. Raphael says, trust me, man, this is the way to go. He says, uh, when you get in there, this is a demon that's been doing this. So what you're going to do is you're going to burn the heart, and you're going to burn the liver. You're going to chase that demon away. So he says, "All right. so uh, would you help set it up? So Raphael does the talking to the dad, and they're all excited. You know, I'm sure they've got the wedding dress there. It's just (laughs) fresh back from the dry cleaners. And, uh, um, Ethel, we still got the flowers? And, uh, they get the, the wedding all set up, and, uh, um, the dad likes this kid you know he's thinking oh he's a kinsman redeemer under the law of moses this is wonderful i hate to see him go <laughs> and uh <laughs> oh oh it gets worse i mean the wedding happens and and tobias and sarah are off to the bed chamber and the dad's trying to get some sleep and says oh heavens, why am I wasting time? I need to be digging a grave. And he gets his servant to come in, they start digging the grave. It's when he's done digging the grave that he sends the servant to say, go see if he's dead yet. And uh, the guy's not dead yet because he burned the heart, he burned the liver, they chased the demon away. In fact, the demon fled all the way to Egypt where Raphael went and bound him in chains so he couldn't come back. And so um, the marriage works, and and they don't consummate the marriage actually for several days, uh, uh, um, and so I think three days of, of non consummation while they dedicate themselves to the Lord in purity, and with prayer, and then there's a fourteen day festival, uh, wedding festival, and the parents are elated. They finally got rid of their daughter, <laughs> and uh, you know to someone, and it worked, and they just you know the the, the whole thing's just turning out dandy. Um, meanwhile, however, Tobit's family is very worried. His mother and father realize that the boy's been gone a lot longer than he should have been gone. Uh, Tobias does send Raphael on the way to get the money, and Raphael finishes the journey, gets the money, comes back. Raphael and the family, the, uh, the, the Tobias and Sarah, they're all headed back to, to Nineveh to Tobit. Tobit and his wife are in tears. They've done the calendar. They realize the boy's been gone too long. His cell phone's not working. They don't know what's going on. And so they're all upset, and then the boy appears, and he's got a kinsman wife, and he's got the money, and there is great rejoicing, and it is then that uh, uh, Raphael tells the boy, hey, by the way, you still got that gall in your pocket? Yeah, I do. Okay, make the sal, put it on your dad's eyes. It's going to smart, but it's going to heal the white spots that are there, and, and uh, his blindness will be healed, and it is. It's a wonderful story, delightful story, now it's a story that's had some interesting effects in history. Louis the who was uh, uh, the king in the twelve hundreds, that was the big crusade leader. When he finally got married, this was a big marriage story. This would be told in a, this is in the Amish marriage manual, ministers' manual for Amish wedding ceremonies to tell this story. And uh, Louis the um, who became Saint Louis, uh, he's the canonized Saint Louis who. Uh, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, St. Louis, Miori, the the whole (laughs) crew get their name from. Um, Louis gets married to his wife uh, uh, and they don't consummate the marriage for three days. And holy people during the Middle Ages would often do that. They would wait three days to consummate the marriage after the wedding uh, out of respect and tribute and holy piety from the book of Tobit. Um, uh, It's also important because of what it does tell us about Jewish piety, the big three, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. It's also important because it is uh, an indicator of of great teaching and activity about angels and demons that happens a lot in books between the Old Testament and New Testament. If you go back to the Old Testament, you don't read a whole lot about angels and demons. You read very little if you take into account the entire book. I mean all of the books. There are references, but they are very few and scattered. Yet in the New Testament, angels and demons are all over the place. And it's during this intertestamental time period that there was a lot of talk and a lot of writings and a lot of knowledge about angels and demons being thrown around uh, by various peoples. Next story, or next book, Judith. Judith is another book that uh, I would consider a religious allegory. Some people consider it historical. They are in the minority. Uh, I don't think it's anything that happened. I think it's a story that was written to try and illustrate some religious truths that were very useful for the the Jewish people in the 150 to 200 BC era. We'll talk about it more next week, but this is a time period about 150 to 200 years before Christ when there was a great deal of fighting going on about the people in, in Israel. Egypt wanted them. Syria wanted them. The, the Israelites themselves, the Jews themselves, would dicker back and forth about which one they should be associated with. And then in comes one of the Antiochuses, Antiochus Epiphanes we call him, one of the Antiochus who's a ruler out of the Syria part, and decides he's going to make all of, all of Jewishness Greek. And uh, he comes in and winds up forcing everybody to follow the Greek religion. He takes the temple that is dedicated to Yahweh and turns it into a temple to worship Zeus, and brings in and forces people to either worship Zeus, the Greek god, or die. And uh, the whole temple is desecrated in that way. And and the people, you know, they're taking down different high priests and putting in different high priests based upon which political party's going and the people are in a real struggle as to trying to figure out, should we hold on to Yahweh, should we hold on to the faith of the fathers, or should we go ahead and junk it and do the convenient thing with the Greeks and the Greek God system? That kind of stuff. In the midst of all of that, the story of Judith comes out, and I think it's a religious allegory to tell the people to hold on in faith to God. The story itself... Um, goes back uh, uh, 300 years from the time I'm talking to you, or 400 years, goes back to the time of, of okay, I need to sneeze. And I mean, it's one of those things where it's just like right there, but I'm not sneezing. It's a real distraction while I'm up here. Not that Judith is anything to sneeze at. I don't think that it is, but I want to. Um, excuse me for just a minute. and. Okay, Judith, um, Nebuchadnezzar is coming against the Israelites in this story. Nebuchadnezzar has sent his general, Holofernes to go wipe out the Jews. And all the Jews are petrified and nobody wants to do anything. And everybody's hiding in their holes and just praying that things will pass. Except for Judith, who says, I will take matters into my own hands because God is in control. And Judith prays to God. She gets her best red dress. And she dresses up. She puts on her makeup. She is looking fine. And she goes out there to find the general. And all of the heads turn when she walks by. And she goes right in to find the general. And she says, I am here to help you conquer the Jews. And he says, well, I don't know what you look like you're here for. And she says, well, that's what I'm here for. And he is beguiled by her beauty. And he is so taken in by her... He starts lusting in his heart after her, and somewhere in there, his brain starts going fuzzy, and he's not thinking clearly because he's thinking about her and how to woo her, and his guard is dropped. Power number three. Power number three. That's exactly right. <laughs> I see my mom out there. Mom taught me growing up. She said, you watch it. Those holy men, they always got caught by women. You know, you go through and it listed them. You know, you, you start looking. David, boom, down, you know. And there are a bunch of them that did, you know. It's it's uh, powerful stuff. That's right. That's right. You think wine will mess up your thinking. So... Um, and I mean, that's what's happened here. I mean, it's just that you read the story, this is what it's saying. And his head, he starts thinking kind of fuzzy. And, and the bottom line is, is um, uh, he never gets a chance to uh, uh, complete uh, uh, any type of action based upon his lust because she kills him, beheads him. Because he sends everybody out. And she didn't just have a red dress. She had a weapon. And uh, he's, he's dead. And she takes his, the general's head back to the people and it's a rallying cry not only for the Israelites but it petrifies uh, the Babylonians <laughs> who flee. The uh, Holofurness' army flees. And all of Israel is saved. And it's a story that, that was written to try and teach Israel uh, to be faithful to God because uh, your, their, their salvation, their help could come from any number of unexpected areas but it comes from God and so to be faithful to God. Don't submit to your enemies, trust God. Now next we have some additions to the book of Esther. We talked about them last week, I'll just remind you. Esther is a very unusual Old Testament book, the only book in the Old Testament that doesn't mention God, doesn't mention prayer, doesn't mention worship. And that's the Hebrew text of Esther. The Greek text of Esther that's come out of the Septuagint, out of the translations in Egypt of the Bible into Greek, uh, uh, those have additional parts to the story of Esther that kind of fix that problem for those who think it is a problem. I happen to think it's a a cool technique in the book of Esther to write a book that's so clearly about God providing for his people and his people's devotion to God that, that it's underscored by never saying God. You know, it's, it's by never saying that, that God did this, and yet it is so apparent in the book that it's the hand of God. And it, it's a real confirming message to me that God is working and God is taking care of things whether we know it or not. Whether we give Him credit or not. Anything that's good comes from God. Period. Whether you give Him credit or not. Um, so it's got sections that add prayer, devotion, and faith to God. Wisdom of Solomon is the next one. Let's spend a few minutes on this, and this, this may be the last one we cover today. Uh, Wisdom of Solomon is a fascinating book to me because I'm convinced that it's one that Paul would have used to study when Paul was studying to be a rabbi. Uh, you remember the uh, Apostle Paul when he was Saul, studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And some of what we now have as apocryphal books were actually books that were used. To teach Jewish kids in the, the, the temple and in the schools, the synagogues and the what have you. I think the wisdom of Solomon is one that was. Uh, it's not written by Solomon and, and folks know that. Uh, folks knew that then. No one's ever thought it was. It's kind of wisdom of Solomon in the sense of a tribute. Uh, a lot of the Psalms will say a Psalm of David. The the, the title doesn't mean that they're psalms written by David. It can just as well mean that they're psalms about David or psalms that were inspired by David. Uh, It's a title that's been added that's not in the original psalm anyway. Uh, uh, So the same uh, thing goes true for this. This is not wisdom written by Solomon. Um, There are some things in it that let us know that it's not written by Solomon. It was written by someone after Plato had come and gone because there are some very platonic uh, ideas that are in it. It was Plato uh, who first wrote and and expounded philosophically on the idea that the soul, our soul, pre-exists our birth. And that when we're born, we're, our soul is just being trapped into a body. Imprisoned is the word that Plato uses. And and these ideas are there. Um, uh, so, so we know that this is written sometime after that. It's also interesting that the, I've never understood and I'm not a good Catholic scholar I'm sure there's a Catholic explanation but this repudiates the doctrine of purgatory uh, 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 pretty clearly as I read it and uh, I've got that reference in last week's lesson I won't go back into it but uh, uh, it's, it's in there as well. I think of the the books in the Apocrypha this one probably was more influential to New Testament writers than any other book. Uh, this is a book that they would have had very good knowledge of and so it would influence them significantly. Um, how many of you have seen The Passion? Okay. If you think about Jesus' crucifixion, do you think that seeing the movie The Passion would influence the way you think? Of course it does. Uh, not that The Passion was divinely inspired um, in, in, a, in the same sense that the Bible was. It, 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 it may have been inspired in that God was behind it. I believe that. But, but not in the sense of... Uh, uh, the Bible being inspired. But it affects what you think. So, so you know, you've got these guys like Paul, the Apostle Paul, who read and study the wisdom of Solomon. And that stuff enters into their minds and these are ideas and words and thoughts that they have. Some of which, as they learn about Jesus, they find confirming. Some, as they learn about Jesus, they say, hey, that's different than what I've been taught. And so they learn to contrast. But it's interesting to see how Paul references some of this. And so i pulled out just a couple of passages from the Wisdom of Solomon and the Book of Romans to give you so that we could look at it together. And I, there's just a couple. But Romans 1, 20, 21, 22, those are, are uh, what I put up here. Romans 1, 20, Paul says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So, men are without excuse. What Paul's saying here is, is, uh, in a nutshell, you you walk in this world and you see what God's made, you don't have an excuse for not knowing there's a God. Wisdom said this, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 13, verse 5, For from created things does man form the image of their first maker. For living among his works they make diligent search. They are not to be excused. And he's making the point, you know, you you look at the creation. You look at the things created. And you can form an image. You can see that there has to be a creator living among his works. You make diligent search. You see these things. You're without an excuse for recognizing there's a God because of the things you see. Paul continues in Romans. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened." Again, out of 13 from the Book of of Wisdom, it says, "...By nature all men were foolish, and had no perception of God, and from the good things to be seen had not the power to know Him that is." And as we read it in the English, you can see the thought that's there, but you sit down and you read the Greek, and you see the same words being used. just my English translations from the NIV. I'm using R.H. Uh, Charles's translation of the uh, uh, Apocrypha. And so it, it, it doesn't translate as clearly. For to know you is perfect righteousness. To know your dominion is eternal life. That's Wisdom 15.3. Look at it again. To know you, God, is perfect righteousness. To know your dominion, where all you reign is eternal life. Now think about that and compare it to what Jesus says in John. Jesus would have known these words. Jesus says, let's take the wisdom of Solomon and make it the wisdom of God. And look how he kicks this verse up a couple of notches. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Wisdom said, eternal life is to know God's dominion, to know God is to know is, is perfect righteousness. Jesus says, no, eternal life is to know God as the only true God. And Jesus Christ, Jesus is God's dominion. Jesus is what God has. Jesus is God. And Jesus is, is saying, if you think that the wisdom of Solomon is right, that to know God is righteousness. And eternal life is to know how God's righteousness is exhibited in the world, His dominion. Let me lay it on the line. Eternal life is this, to know God. But God's righteousness and His dominion are the same thing. That's Him whom God sent, Jesus Christ. And these are the kinds of passages that, that really allow us to um, take things. I'm going to skip through this, Ecclesiasticus. Um, it's, well, i can do it real quick. Ecclesiasticus is just another, it's like Proverbs, the second chapter. It's a, a guy, Ben Sirah was a teacher in, in the 100s, and he taught Jewish kids. He had a school, and this was a book he wrote for kids to learn by, to learn moral precepts. It's, and he bottled it off of the book of Proverbs. So i give you an example up here. Many have fallen by the edge of the sword, but not as many as killed by the tongue. You know, Mom's another one taught us. Growing up, she'd walk around the house singing angry words, oh, let them never, from the tongue unbridled slip. Hey, well, That's the kind of stuff we learned. Um, it's, Mom was, just didn't realize it. She was steeped in the Apocrypha. Um, <laughs> points for home. Number one, truth really is strongest of all if we understand Jesus is the truth. Point number two. On marriage, waiting three days and all that stuff? Don't worry, it's the Apocrypha. (laughs) Number three, uh, the Apocrypha can give insight for holy living. And we should see it for that. And number four, if you know Jesus and you know God, you know eternal life. You've seen the, on the, some churches on their marquee, know Jesus, KNO, know life, know Jesus, No know life, No Jesus, NO, No life, NO.. If you know Jesus and you know God, you know eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the many myriad ways you teach us and the many messages you have to teach us, and the, the, it, it, it brings joy to my heart, Lord, to see through the ages how you have worked. Uh, things that come and things that go, but in the midst of it all, how you manage to focus your people back to who you are. And Lord, it's my prayer that's what we'll do in this class and that's what you will do in our lives, that that you will bring us back to a focus of who you are that outshines any problems we have. That you are ultimately a healer of all of our problems. That you are ultimately a a healer of all of our relationships. A healer of all of our infirmities. A healer of of all of our difficulties. That you come down and, and touch us with a promise of making us whole one day. In your presence for eternity. Thank you for the many ways you show us. In Jesus we pray, amen.